Good morning, my friend. I am so happy to be with you today. It's Self-Brain Surgery Saturday, 5 August 2023, and we are here today to talk about how to go all in on getting unstuck. It's about 5, almost 6 o'clock in the morning, and I am sitting here in the poorly lit room hoping that uh, if you're a paid subscriber, you can see my face because we're going to talk about a couple of things today that I think it would be helpful if you can see. Um, if you're a free subscriber, you'll hear this audio, and I want to encourage you to check the show notes because I'm going to put a couple of pictures in the show notes that I want you to look at. So if you listen to this on Apple or Spotify or somewhere else, go out to my website, wleewarnmd.com, or if you listen on Substack, drleewarn.substack.com, and, and look at the images in the show notes here. Because there's a couple of pictures I want to show you of brain scans. They're going to help you with this concept of how to get unstuck. I found some research yesterday. I was preparing for an interview uh, that I'm going to be doing uh, in an article that I wrote for a, a, a website called The Christian Post. And there's another interview that I'm going to be doing uh, in, in regards to some of the mental disorders that come out of concussion and head injuries for a TV station in Connecticut that led me down this rabbit hole of looking at functional brain imaging again. And I found a fascinating article on this this complex grief condition called complicated grief. <laughs> complicated grief is where you get sort of stuck in this yearning, this longing for the person that you lost and how things used to be. And, and people can get stuck in this in this place where their whole life is defined by and thinking about the loss that they've had and how much they want things to be the way they used to be. And that creates this whole complex neurochemical problem and your life can really get stuck. And in my book, Hope is the First Dose, we talk about these people that we call crashers. And I realized that this is the neuroscience of what a crasher really is. And whatever your crash was about, it doesn't have to be grief. It doesn't have to be grief. It can be any kind of major massive thing, trauma, tragedy, loss, the death of a dream. You know, it doesn't have to be the death of a child or a spouse or something like that. But most of the time, it, it is something massive like that that happened that, that creates these crashers who people who even if they survive the problem. They get stuck in this hole where their hopelessness is high and their hopefulness and joy and peace and what they would call happiness are gone. And they just don't recover. Even if they survive the problem, if they don't take their own life, they just become these empty shell people. And I found this research yesterday that shows some pictures of what's happening in the brain of people with complex grief in this phase that they call yearning. So, and you know what that is. Like I, I spent months and years of my life since I lost Mitch in this yearning phase where you just get down in this hole and in your brain you you just so badly want them to be back and you yearn and you long for getting to see them again. I used to pray that I would dream about Mitch and see him because I was missing him so much. I just I thought even having a dream would make it better. And unfortunately I still to this day I haven't had a sweet, happy memory dream about Mitch. And I know that's based in neuroscience and based in my brain's deep wound around losing him. But every dream I've ever had about Mitch since I lost him was painful in some way. Sometimes really, really graphic views of what happened to him. And sometimes conversations where I wish I had said something different than I did or whatever. And I just haven't had that sweet dream that made me feel like he was, you know, happy and everything was okay. I haven't had that. 
And so this this article that I found yesterday led me down this rabbit hole of a whole bunch of research, and I found this neuroscience basically where they took pictures of what's happening chemically in the brain in the yearning phase of complicated grief, and there's a lesson to be learned in there for us. And we're going to get into that today in this self-brain surgery of how to go all in on getting unstuck. And the truth is, as I've been saying for years and as the Bible's been saying for centuries, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you'd like the show. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Okay, friend. Thanks, Lisa, for that. And we are back. And today we're going to talk about science a little bit, okay? Because we're talking about self-brain surgery Saturday and learning these operations that can kind of change how your mind works because we're always saying it sounds like a corny line but it's really not this you can't change your life until you change your mind the fact is okay from a science standpoint you get you create synaptic connections you create these networks of cells that produce automated reactions and this can be thoughts or feelings or actions or physiological events or hormonal changes even dna replication now we know this is sort of the basis of how generations of people can kind of be born feeling or being afraid of certain things because their parents were it's about the reason it happens is because of synapses that get made okay so it's, it's really true that learning how, as Paul said in Second Corinthians 10, to take captive every thought, that's how you start to get over the hump of changing how your mind works in the baseline, in the default state, so that you don't have to do the work again every day of learning to heal and process and think differently. You can start to, to make those changes happen more automatically. Okay? That's what self-brain surgery is. Okay. Now, I've been on a few podcasts since my book came out. I hope it's the first dose, of course, released Shoot, almost three weeks ago now. And this is everywhere books are sold. You can find it. And if you haven't read it yet, I hope that you will. It's really my best attempt to give you a plan for what to do when life throws these massive things at you. Traumas and tragedies and loss and grief and pain and even dreams that die and all those things. It's, it's the idea that we can get ahead of that devastation by learning how to change the way we think about things and make some decisions about what we believe and what we know to be true and preloading our brain with that prehab that we talk about, uh, putting thoughts and behavior loops in place for what we're going to do when something happens, which is just like drilling for something in sports or running a plan to evacuate a building if it catches on fire, learning how to stop, drop, and roll if you burst into flames or learning how to do CPR, learning how to 
Put an EpiPen in your purse in case your child has an allergic reaction. These are things that we do all the time. We prepare for things, even if they're not very likely to occur. But we don't spend much time preparing for these massive things. Well, today, I want to talk specifically about a problem called complex or complicated grief. And these are people that get stuck when they crash after the massive thing happens. They lose somebody, lose a child, lose a, lose a parent, lose a spouse, lose a best friend. These are people who get stuck in that grief process and they can't move forward in their life. And they have a lot of rumination where they spend all their time thinking and yearning and longing and wanting things to be the way they used to be and they just aren't. And then they, they have so much physiological pain, they have so much emotional turmoil that they often turn to harmful behaviors, numbing behaviors, the ways to stop thinking about it, drinking or sex or shopping or, or gambling or relationships or whatever. That they, they do something to try to turn their mind off of it so they won't think about it anymore, but it doesn't work. You know what happens when you try to numb yourself. You can't selectively numb the one thing that hurts. So you numb everything, and then the rest of your relationships start to suffer, or you start to pay these tomorrow taxes, as we talk about, so then the next day feels terrible, and now you're medicating how you feel the next day because of what you did the previous day. And I was just on Annie Grace's podcast, the This Naked Mind podcast, and we had a really good talk about the science of of numbing behaviors and alcohol use and ways to cover up pain and, and what that does to your brain. And if you if you want to, to get into the weeds on understanding my perspective on how important it is to let your brain feel what it feels so you can heal from what you feel and then start moving forward. That podcast, Annie Grace's podcast, was really, really helpful, and I'll put a link in the show notes there. But there's another one. Jill and Brad Sullivan are a couple who lost a child, a teenager, to glioblastoma a few years ago, and they took that pain and they turned it into this ministry where they, they help other grieving couples other grieving people who have lost children or lost somebody in their life. And they have the podcast called While We're Waiting. And that was one of my favorite conversations about grief that I've ever had. Jill and I had a long talk. And I've been hearing from so many of her listeners who have connected to this idea of changing your brain so you can change your life and changing the things you think about so you can start to heal. And it was really a powerful conversation. And Jill and Brad, thank you for having me on your show. And I'll link into that one too. And just yesterday, I got an email from a woman who heard me on the Jesus Calling podcast. And another one, the Jesus Calling podcast, we had a really good talk again about grief and loss and the science of what your brain is doing when you're hurting and all these things that we talk about and hope is the first dose and why we need a treatment plan. And this woman lost her fourth child shortly after they were born three years ago. And just she just talked about the pain and how th- these ideas are starting to help her kind of unlock that idea that she's stuck and how to move forward. So I thought today might be a good day to just learn how to shift gears, to to talk about the process of taking ownership of the fact that you're stuck and thinking about a new way to sort of shift into gear and start moving forward again. You know, if your car is in neutral, it doesn't matter how long you press the gas, you're not going to go anywhere. Right. And you can spend all your gasoline and all your energy and burn that engine up running that engine and you're not going to go anywhere until you get it in gear. Right. Until you shift into gear. Well, 
the, the good news is I found an article yesterday that led me down this rabbit hole looking at functional brain imaging. And there's a part of your brain that Daniel Amen calls it the gear shift. It's called the anterior cingulate cortex, anterior cingulate gyrus, some people call it. And the cingulate is this area in the, in the middle of your brain down under the corpus callosum that, that basically is involved in shifting the gear when it's time for you to make a decision or think about something differently or decide to, to pursue this and not that, 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 that gear shift that you, that you make that puts your brain into gear and moves in a different direction is part of the brain's reward circuit. It's part of this dopamine serotonin axis that this, this, this reward system that helps you identify certain behaviors that make you feel better and start moving towards them. Okay. Now, unfortunately, functional brain imaging studies have learned, have shown real clearly now that that reward circuit is abnormal and doesn't behave properly in people with major depression, people with post-traumatic stress, people with obsessive compulsive disorder. And now I just found a paper yesterday that was published back in 2018 that people who are stuck in complex grief in this yearning phase of complex grief have similar abnormal activities in their subgenual anterior cingulate cortex. That's a long word. SGACC is easier. But that subgenual anterior cingulate cortex turns out to be highly abnormal in its behavior and blood flow and metabolic activity in people who are dealing with major depression in that rumination phase of major depression where they just can't stop mulling some things over and they just can't do anything but think about this painful thing and they can't stop they they can't move they just get stuck and they sit and they don't shower and they can't get out of bed and they don't and they just drink or or they eat or they just sleep all the time they just can't get out of that phase and there's been a few studies now that have shown abnormal activity in that, specifically in that tiny little area in the middle of your brain, the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex. Well, this paper that was published in 2018 that I found yesterday, titled Yearning Predicts Subgenual Anterior Cingulate Activity in Bereaved Individuals. That's a long title. Yearning Predicts anterior, Subgenual Anterior Cingulate Activity in Bereaved Individuals. I thought, well, that's an interesting title. Let me read about this. A paper that was published in the journal Helion in 2018 by McConnell, Kilgore, and O'Connor. Now, Mary Frances O'Connor has published several papers in this sort of area around major depression and complex grief and looking at what happens to the brain. And she's published some interesting papers before about um, a little area called the nucleus acumens. It's abnormal in grief response. So I thought this paper might be interesting. I'm going to drink some coffee because I'm having trouble clearing my throat. Hang on. My Yeti coffee cup with my Folgers black silk coffee. Not a paid endorsement. I just love it. If you work for Folgers or Yeti, reach out to me. We'll we'll put a commercial for you on the show. <laughs> just kidding. Listen, this is a fascinating paper, okay? Several things culminated yesterday in me thinking about all this. So I was writing an article uh, as I said earlier, um, about grief and t- turning grief into an idol. And we have a whole chapter in the book about the, the way that you can get stuck and grief can become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And this loss can so, can get so big that it becomes the only thing you can see. And it becomes bigger than God. And you start to believe that not even God can take it away. That it's just something that you're just going to have to suffer with forever. And you can begin to believe these lies that trauma puts into your head that you, that things are just never going to feel better. And some people, then will take that false idea and they will pursue that and they end up becoming morbid, depressed, 
stuck, suicidal, alcoholic, whatever. So those are the people in the in the book that I call the crashers, the people that take that path where they just crash and their whole life becomes defined by this one thing. And in a spiritual term, you would say that that's idolatry. Now, I understand I'm parsing out the difference between a real mental disorder where you are psychiatrically damaged and you need professional help. Okay, there are some people who need medical treatment. It, some some of those people turn out to have hormonal problems, thyroid issues or something that need medicine. Okay, they need a doctor involved in their care. And some people need a psychiatrist. And some people need medication for short periods of time. Some people actually need medical help. So I just say that to say this. Don't forget on this podcast that I am not talking about when I give you these ideas, I'm not saying that there's no role for medicine. I'm a doctor for, for crying out loud. Okay. I make my living delivering medicine and surgery to people. So, so understand if you are really stuck and you are trying your best and it's not working and you can't get out of bed or you're drinking or you're doing some sort of behavior that's harmful to you or your relationships are crumbling, go get some help. Okay. Please. Talk to a therapist, talk to your doctor, talk to somebody you can trust and get some help, okay? I'm talking about here, we're having a conversation about understanding how your brain works, understanding how trauma works, understanding how grief works, so that you can make some changes yourself. And some people can use this self-brain surgery concept and they can make it all the way back. I never had to take an SSRI or an antidepressant. I never had to go to treatment. I never saw a professional therapist or counselor after we lost Mitch because I had Lisa and I had Pastor John. I had Dennis and Patty. I had family, mom and dad and other other people, my children to help me. And I'm a mental health expert. Okay. So I understood what was happening. Even when I, when, even when I was hurting so bad that I couldn't fix it myself, I understood what was happening. So I made it through without having to seek that professional help, but it's there for you, friend. And if you need it, go get it. It's part of the healing process, okay? Don't be afraid to ask for help. Be afraid of not asking for help, okay? That's a long disclaimer, but I just want to make sure that you don't ever make the mistake of thinking that I'm saying you can do all this on your own. You, you can't. Sometimes you need help, okay? And don't be afraid to ask for it. So that being said... This paper stopped me in my tracks as I was preparing yesterday for these interviews that I have coming up and this article I was writing. And the paper says, yearning predicts subgenual anterior cingulate activity in bereaved individuals. Remember, this is self-brain surgery Saturday. This is the day of the week that we go a little deeper on the science. So forgive me for some of the big words and some of the things, but I'm, I'm going to make a point. The other thing that happened yesterday was I received an email from Mark Vrogap, who I, I just was blown away that I got this email. Mark Rogep wrote the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It's about lament and learning how to pray through lament. He uses the book of Lamentations as a template for learning how to voice our concerns and our complaints and our frustrations to God when we're hurting and how the Bible authorizes that and gives us numerous examples in Psalms and in, in Lamentations and other places of what this powerful prayer language does, of how lament helps us to articulate what we're feeling and put it before God and it helps us to move forward. But another thing that Mark Rogep said in that book is going to come back to the end of this episode and help us. But when I saw that email from him yesterday, it was incredible. I'm going to share more about that with you later. But the email basically said he'd, he, his son and he had read the book and it was helpful and he gave me some really nice things to think about. But when I saw his name, it triggered something I remembered 
about this paper that I had read earlier in the day, yearning predicts subgenual anterior cingulate activity in bereaved individuals. Let me just break this down for you, okay? I'm going to read you the first part of this paper that O'Connell, O'Connor, McConnell, and Kilgore wrote. It's incredible. But So there's a little science in here, but just listen to this. Complicated grief or persistent complex bereavement disorder is a condition that affects approximately 10% of bereaved individuals. Okay, there's crashers are a small group, but they are real. And there's about 10% of people that crash after they go through the massive thing, okay? This is correlating with what I wrote in Hope is the First Dose. A condition that affects approximately 10% of bereaved individuals and is marked by intense longing and yearning for the deceased. Okay? I know you're resonating with me if you've lost somebody. You spend time just begging God to make it all be a dream. To bring them back, I, 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 a million times I said, God, can I just wake up tomorrow and Mitch is going to be in his room and everything's going to be back to normal and the last 10 years have just been this terrible nightmare and he's going to be alive again. I've yearned for him, longed for him. And I know Dennis lost his wife, Patty, my mother-in-law, five years ago now. I know he longs for her, yearns for her. I know that woman that wrote me yesterday about losing her son. I know she's yearning for him, Okay. So that's it's not wrong to yearn, but what happens is some people get stuck in that intense yearning phase, and they can't move past it. And the writers, again, little is known about the neurocognitive mechanisms contributing to this syndrome, but previous research suggests that reward pathways in the brain, reward pathways in the brain may play a role. Listen, there's a whole set of systems in your brain. They're circuits, they're networks, we call them. There's one called the default mode, and that's what happens when you're not actively thinking about anything, when you just relax and close your eyes and kind of turn your mind off and make, make it quiet in your room. There's a set of mental processes that are happening, and when the default mode isn't working properly, when the default mode is excessively negative or harmful, that can get you in a lot of trouble. Okay? But there's other networks too, and there's this whole dopamine reward circuit that, that's complex, and it involves... What happens when you anticipate a reward? This is the, the, the neuroscience of addiction. Like I anticipate if I get to a certain time of day and I put myself in a certain place that there's going to be a glass of wine and that's going to help me relax and I'm going to feel better and stop thinking about this thing that happened and then I'll be okay. And you start building. It's not the actual substance. It's not the alcohol or the gambling or the sex or the online shopping or whatever. It's not that thing that produces the the feeling that you want, it's the anticipation of the reward that's related to the neurotransmitter release. And so understanding that basically addiction is a reward-chasing behavior and not that you actually need the substance to feel better, that's the beginning of learning how to heal from addiction, okay, is understanding that you can replace that reward with something healthier and you can find that dopamine elsewhere. That's the beginning of understanding how to unlock your brain and move forward in addiction, okay? But it turns out that those same circuits, look at my eyes, this is, I'm smiling right now because when I read this yesterday, I actually started weeping. I had so much compassion for people who are stuck in grief because I've been there. And I think I already know what my next book is. I'm already writing it. It's about self-brain surgery. And one of the chapters is going to be like, don't be so hard on yourself, friend, if you're stuck in grief because we're going to teach you how to shift the gear and we're going to teach you how to drive out of that hole. Okay, 
because the brain science is so clear and the spirituality is so clear that God wants you to move forward and the path is to change how your brain works. And that's what this paper did for me yesterday. I had Mark Rogep's thought in my mind and I had this neuroscience article that I was writing and I had this little bit of research and all these emails and all this stuff coalesced and I found this picture of the functional magnetic resonance imaging scans that these folks did. And I'm going to put it up on the screen now for the paid subscribers and it'll be in the show notes. Picture of the brain that shows increased metabolic activity in the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex when people are focused on the yearning phase of their grief of the person they lost. They showed them pictures, a bunch of pictures of their loved ones, and they asked them to think about the thoughts that they think when they're missing them, and they did a countdown timer, five, four, three. The, the images, the numbers were flashing in their mind, and they would learn that at the end of that countdown, they were going to see a picture of their loved one, and they saw that anticipation, that yearning phase before the reward of seeing the picture. They were seeing increased activity in the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex. And this is the exact same area that lights up in the rumination phase of major depressive disorder, okay? So what they showed for the first time is that the problem is the area of your brain that's involved in shifting the gear and driving, making a decision to think about this and not that, to make a decision to feel this and not that, to make a decision to get up out of bed or not, that those decisions, that the gear shifting that the cingulate does is abnormally behaving in people with yearning, abnormal grief response, just as it does in people with major depression disorder. Why is that so important? It's important because understanding what parts of your brain aren't working properly is the key to beginning to get them to work properly. And we know from self-brain surgery and we know from the Bible that learning to think differently is the secret to starting to change some of these things because you can direct these mental processes. Jeffrey Schwartz calls it mental force. You can direct mental force. You can engage in directed neuroplasticity and you can begin to heal. I had a friend after we lost Mitch, who's another doctor who said, Lee, I don't know what to say to you, but I know that Mitch wouldn't want his death to cause a 200% mortality rate. He wouldn't want you to die too. He wouldn't want you to be a crasher. He wouldn't want your life to become just about his loss. He would want you to take that pain and turn it into something good. And that, my friend, is why I'm talking to you at 5 o'clock in the morning in the dark in my room, looking like I do, looking in the camera not concerned about the lighting, drinking coffee with you because I want Mitch's life to be about something more than his death. We're almost 10 years in. In fact, today's the 5th of August. So 15 days from now is the 10th anniversary of us losing our son. Okay? And I want his life to mean more to me than his death did. And I want to use the power of that to move me into a place where I can be helpful to you as an honor to him. And I hope my book has done that. I hope this podcast does that. I hope you find a way to redeem your pain and use it for something powerful. Use it for something meaningful so that your life, their life doesn't have, their death doesn't have a 200% mortality rate. Does that make sense? So here's the thing. Mark Rogep's book, there's a line, our natural bias is to individualize suffering. 
Our natural bias is to individualize suffering. When I read that, I thought, yeah, that's right, man. People always make everything about themselves. And I read Lamentations chapter 3, and the guy, we've talked about this before, Lamentations, if you're new around here, Lamentations is the textbook for how you learn how to process grief and how you learn to find hope in the midst of the hardest things in your life. It's where I figured out that hope is the first dose, and it's where I figured out that hope is a verb. It's an action word. You can't sit around and wait for hope. You have to make it because it's always available, and there's two parts of it, and one part is memory, and the other part is movement. Okay. Scientifically, they say hope is about agency and pathways. So hope is about having the possibility of doing something to try to move forward in your life and a pathway, a realistic opportunity to do that. Those two things. And hope is defined by some researchers as the ability to think that you can, a, a way to see that you can get there from here. So get there from here through agency and pathways. Biblically, it's about memory and movement. In every example of the Bible where somebody says they're hopeless, they start to remember that this isn't the first time that people they or other people they know have been through hard things. They start to look back in time and say, wait a minute, we were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and God got us out. We were wandering around the desert for 40 years and God got us out. We ran up against the Red Sea and God parted it. We ran up against the Jordan River and God parted it. We we couldn't win against Jericho and the walls fell down. We couldn't make it through the desert because we were starving and he provided manna. We were thirsty and he put water out of the rock. We were we were hungry and he gave us quail. Like ever, they started remembering all the times before that God did something impossible to make a way, as he says in Isaiah, where there is no way, where he'll make a stream in the wasteland where there wasn't one. So remembering starts to create this, this burning ember of hope starts to come alive. And then they have to do something. They have to move. And from a neuroscience perspective, we know that since you can't really multitask, like we talked about a few days ago, we know that beginning to move will take your brain off the thing that you're stuck on and make you think about something else. And you'll start to feel some dopamine release, some reward for movement, and you'll start to make a mental bridge in your brain that says, if I move, I feel better. I don't have to drink to feel better. I can exercise instead. I can do this instead of that. I can find that reward somewhere else, and you'll start to move. And when you move, you'll start to feel hopeful because it's possible. You just proved to yourself that it's possible for you to get out of bed today. It's possible for you to walk down the driveway and check the mail again. It's possible for you to call your other children and talk to them after you lost one. You don't have to be dead inside anymore. It's possible. You can move. So that all that stuff coalesced in the third chapter of Lamentations when all these bad things were happening to the city and the king and people were being murdered and women and children were starving to death. And he says, I am the man who has tasted affliction and the wrath from the Lord. Like he's the man who's been suffering. He's making it about himself. We've really upset it. Our natural bias is to individualize suffering. Well, listen to what these researchers said. This is fascinating. Fascinating. What they found when they looked at the, com- the comparison between major depressive disorder and complex grief and the activity that they're seeing in the subgenual anterior circulate, uh, cingulate cortex, they said symptoms of depressive rumination and yearn- abnormal yearning in complex grief share three qualities. For one, both rumination and yearning in the context of grief are experienced as uncontrollable, so in other words, we don't think we can stop it, okay? We're just grieving and we're sad and we're broken and we're hurting and it can't ever be better. Those are trauma lies. 
Those are the automatic negative thoughts that trauma puts into your head. I think it's the devil sometimes, the enemy. And there's not much difference between devil and diagnosis when your brain isn't working right. He can use that to your disadvantage as well. But but the devil and the enemy and your basic trauma response fills your head with this idea that the rumination, that the stuckness, that the pain, the grief, the loss, the pit is uncontrollable and unavoidable. So both rumination and yearning in the context of grief are experienced as uncontrollable. They have a negative valence. What does that mean? A negative valence means this, this, this idea of the feeling that you're feeling has to always be negative, that it can't ever be positive. That's important because if you can switch what we just talked about a while ago when I said I want Mitch's life to have meant more than his death. I want to learn to put a positive balance on the, the experience of losing Mitch where I can say, yes, I've lost my son. And it's devastating and it's terrible and it'll never be good. But his life was so good. There was so much light in his life, and I'm so grateful that I got to experience it, and I'm so p- proud that I was his dad, and that some of those good parts of him were because of me and my relationship with him. And I'm so glad that he got to know Lisa, and, and that he was a good brother, and, and he would have been a, such a good uncle. And, and you start switching from, a, from an automatic negative. Every time you think about that person, it puts you back in the hole of the grief, of the yearning, of the missing, of the longing, of the suffering. If you can switch to where you, you, you put a positive spin and you say, oh, man, what a great kid he was. And, and I really miss him. And I can't wait for the resurrection when I get to see him again. He And he's in this place now that he was created to be in. And God Mitch doesn't have to feel uncomfortable in his own skin anymore. He's happy now. Like if you start spinning that, okay? So the three things, they're uncontrollable. They have a negative balance. And this is the most important thing. This is the self-brain surgery. I brought you here today to say they have a self-focus that stopped me in my track. They're doing brain imaging here, okay? This isn't this isn't Bible. I'm not teaching you a Bible lesson right now. I'm reading you a paper that was published in in secular scientific literature looking at what parts of the brain are active or overactive when you have complex grief in which you're stuck and you're stuck in that yearning phase and you're one of the crashers or you have major depressive disorder and you're ruminating and you're down in that pit with the crashers who can't seem to find their way back up towards hope. This is what they found. The symptoms are experienced as uncontrollable. They have a negative balance, and they are self-focused. Remember, Mark Rogep said, our natural bias is to individualize suffering. The lamenter in chapter 3 said, I am the man who has tasted affliction and seen the wrath of the Lord. I'm the man. All these other people are suffering, but he's the man who's hurting. And friend, that is the secret. Now again, with the caveat that sometimes you need professional help, understand this and this is not i'm not taking a shot at you if you're stuck here i'm with you i've been there okay the thoughts that you think when you are ruminating the thoughts that you think when you are stuck in the yearning phase the thoughts that you think when you've lost everything and you're down in that hole and you and you can't stop thinking about it and you can't move forward in your life the thoughts that you're thinking are about you i'm sorry they are They're about what you feel. They're about what you've lost. They're about what you need. They're about what you want. 
There's a story I told in my book, Hope is the First Dose, about a guy who the CEO of the hospital had made some changes and it negatively impacted this one practice. It saved the hospital, saved hundreds of jobs, made everything better for the patients, kept the place afloat and in business. But it made this one guy's practice a little bit less money and made it a little bit harder on him. And he was furious. And he was, we were at this meeting. He was pounding the table and he was yelling and cussing and screaming and throwing a big tantrum about how bad this decision was for him and his purposes and couldn't see that if they didn't make the change, the hospital would eventually go out of business and he would lose all of his practice. He just couldn't see that. Like He couldn't see that there was a bigger picture here. And the hospital CEO said, look, I really want to help you. What can I do to help you? And he said, unwind it all. Put it all back. Give me back everything before you made the change. Put it exactly back the way it was, and then I'll be happy. And she said, well, that's impossible. We've torn buildings down. We've built new buildings. We've, we've let some people go. We've hired hundreds of new people. We've, we've changed business practices. We, 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 we've built new corporations. Like It's impossible to go back to the, exactly the way it was. It's not possible. You can't have that. And he left the meeting basically saying, I'm not happy unless I can have that. Like, I have to have that one thing. Well, I'm just telling you, friend, his problem was that he was stuck on how the situation affected him. And he couldn't make himself think about the patients and the overall business and the health of the community and all the other millions of positive things that came out of that change. Okay. He couldn't, he was stuck on the fact that he had lost this particular thing that he thought he had to have. Okay, and that's where we get stuck in grief and major depression and loss and yearning. We get stuck in the ways in which this affects us. I can promise you. Now, I did have a lot of thoughts about Mitch's future and how it was so sad that he would never get married and have kids. And I would never get to see what his kids look like and what he did for a living and how he grew up and got through all these things. I, I did have some thoughts like that. But the most thoughts that I had, the most common thought was how bad it hurt me to lose my little boy. It was self-focused. I was focused on what I felt, on how sad I was, on how hard it was going to be for me to go through my life knowing my son wouldn't be there to eulogize me or bury me someday. I worried about how I lost my last living relative that has my last name. I, I thought those things. I'm not proud of it, but I'm just I'm trying to be honest. Like the the rumination that I had was about me, about what I felt, about what I lost, and not so much about Mitch. That's hard to it's, it's hard to say it out loud, but that's really true, and that's what they see in the research in the fMRI scanner that the the symptoms, the the activation, the feelings that these people are feeling are uncontrollable. They have a negative balance and they're self-focused. And so what's the lesson for us here? The lesson is that we have to shift gears. We have to learn how to say, wait a minute, Mitch wouldn't want me to be stuck in that hole. And if he were with me right now, if he could come and sit down and have a cup of coffee with me and say, hey, Dad, let's let's have a cup of coffee and talk for a minute. What he would say is, hey, Dad, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm with Jesus. I'm, I'm happy. I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I want you to use my life, even the end of it, to help other people. And I want you to find purpose and meaning in your days. I don't want you to be dead like I am. I don't want you your life to be meaningless. I don't want you to be stuck. That's what he would say. And that's what your loved one would say too, friend. Your loved one would say, hey, 
go find something to do to to give meaning and purpose to your life again. Move a little bit and you'll start feeling hope. Take hope and fly. Hope returns, okay? I'm going to play that song in a few minutes, Matthew West's song, Hope Returns. Hold on, that's when hope returns. When your when your heart is breaking, when your knees hit the ground, that that's when hope returns, okay? These people put these folks who were grieving and who were stuck in the fMRI scanner, and they said, "Hey, think about your loved one, yearn for them." And they saw activity light up in the same places that light up with major depressive disorder in the rumination phase, and the same places that light up in PTSD and all these other places, major depression where you're stuck and you just can't shift and move forward, okay? There's a place called the Dorsal Attention Network, and it's part of this reward pathway, and it's part of the same circuit here that we're talking about. The Dorsal Attention Network is like the aperture on the lens of a camera, or if you if you take a camera and you turn that aperture, it, it takes the whole big background and it focuses it down where you can focus on that one flower or that one bird or on the hand that you're trying to photograph. It, it zooms in so everything else becomes blurred and all you can see is the thing you're focusing on. That's what the dorsal attention network in your brain does. Okay, And after you're stuck, when you're stuck in grief, it becomes self-focused. And the dorsal attention network becomes lit up when you're thinking about all the ways in which this major loss is affecting you. And what we learned from the science is if you can learn how to zoom back out and start thinking about others, start thinking about your life in a new context, start thinking about what your loved one would want you to feel instead of what you are feeling, you'll start to feel some different things and you'll start to feel some bubbles of dopamine and that reward pathway. And you'll start to sniff out. And it starts to feel true. I'm telling you, I went through this. It started to feel true to me. After my friend said, hey, Mitch wouldn't want you to have a 200% mortality right here. That had a ring to it that felt kind of true. And I think probably there was a little, a little bit of dopamine firing in me anticipating beginning to write or beginning to podcast or beginning to try to help other bereaved parents like Jill and Brad Sullivan have done with the While We're Waiting podcast. They're helping people all over the world. They just got back from Uganda where they're helping grieving parents over there. Like They're taking this loss of their child and they're not just ruminating on it, but they're shifting into gear to drive towards something that has meaning and purpose. And that, my friend, is how you find hope again. That, my friend, is how you get out of the pit of despair. That, my friend, is how you find yourself, as, as, as God said to Isaiah, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. Because you will either do one of two things in the furnace. You will burn up and die yourself. Or you will become refined and you'll burn away all the stuff that's not helpful. All those coping mechanisms that aren't helpful, all the rumination and all the yearning and all the things that are making you stuck and the ways in which you're using substances or shopping or anything else to numb yourself, you'll burn that away and you'll come out refined on the other side. You're not ready to hear this in the acute phase. You're not ready to hear that Romans 8, 28 is true. You're not ready to hear that God will work that for good somehow. You can't hear it early on, but it turns out 10 years later, 
to be true. And it starts to bubble up and you start to hear things like this. When somebody says, hey, your singulate is designed to put you in gear. It's not designed to sit there and be stuck. Your dorsal attention network is designed to allow you to focus on the good things and not be stuck on focusing on the negative things. All these parts of your brain that God made in this incredible research paper pointed it out. Mark Rogep's words came back to me. And I'm just here on self-brain surgery Saturday, friend. I don't have a a catchy phrase for this operation yet, but I'm going to come up with it before I write that book. There's a way that you can start thinking differently about your loss. And you can start turning your attention to focus on something positive, not about the, the loss, but on something positive about the person that you've lost or about the situation that you're in now that you have lost or the, the dream that died, something about the opportunity that you had or that you've learned or that you've grown through or remembering with gratitude the things that you used to have or some other way to pivot away from the negativity related with that loss and you'll begin to feel that reward circuit bubbling and lighting up and you'll know there's some truth to it and if you can just get after it and pursue that, you'll start to find the way forward. And that's what we're coming here every day on this podcast to try to help you do is to find that way forward so you can use your brain the way it's designed so you can come alive again after these hard things happen. There's a treatment plan, okay? There's prehab and there's self-brain surgery and there's rehab and there's community and there's all these things. But all of them depend first on you being willing to believe that it's possible to get better, that you can get there from here. And we call that, what do we call it? We call it hope. Because there's a treatment plan and hope is the first dose and you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is Matthew West is going to tell us hope returns when it seems all hopeless, when it seems like everything's lost. There's a way to find hope. You can show you pictures of somebody's brain when it's happening. That's what's so cool about this. It's not just scripture. It's not just motivational speaking. It's not just me trying to encourage you. It's pictures of your brain when you change the things you think about. And you can literally find hope when you change your mind. And that, my friend, is how you change your life. Let's get after it. This is how it feels when standing strong Turns into barely even holding on The plans you had are shattered on the floor And your fear tells your faith There's no use in praying those prayers anymore
Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.